As I said earlier, our pastor's away. It's my privilege to bring God's word to you today. We're continuing in our study of the Gospel of John. We have a rather large passage today, so let me go ahead and invite you to turn there to John chapter 15. Um, We'll begin with uh, verse 9, and we'll take the rest of the chapter. I'm going to read portions of it as we go, Um, so I'll get back to that in just one moment. If you don't have a Bible today, please take a pew Bible that's in front of you there, and uh, you can turn to page 902 and follow along. Or if you forgot yours, that's fine. Uh, Feel free to grab one of those. There's no embarrassment about that. Uh, We just think it's uh, that God speaks most clearly and directly to us through his word. So we would encourage you to be reading along and following in God's word today. And if you don't have or own a copy of the Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that home with you. Nobody will stare at you or think you're stealing anything. Uh, We want you to have a copy of God's Word, even there again, as we've been hearing from the ministry of the Gideons today. We we think that's important. So take a copy of that with you. We can easily replace it. Since we've been in this section for some time uh, of the Gospel of John, it'd probably be a good exercise for us to remember the context of the passage. Uh, this, the passage in itself went by a whole lot quicker than the month or so that we've been in this particular uh, section. John chapters 13 through 17 are Jesus' last words, if you will, to his disciples while they were in the upper room together and just before his crucifixion. So it's a long section of scripture, but it was Jesus' opportunity to teach his disciples one last time And these are those important words that he gave them. He had washed their feet. They had reclined and had Passover dinner together. Judas had exited their company to betray Jesus. And in just a few minutes, they will leave for the Garden of Gethsemane, where the climax of Jesus' sufferings will begin to unfold. I don't know about you, and maybe I'm a little bit morbid, I don't know, but Sometimes I wonder what I might say to my family members, my children, my friends, if I knew I was going to die, and if God had given me the blessing of having that time to speak with them. I hope I wouldn't waste it on talking about the weather, or football, or politics, but rather I hope I'd have the opportunity and the common sense and the reality enough to tell them how much I love them, how much they've meant to me. Maybe a little advice in my journey that I've had that I could leave about what's really important in life. Well, certainly our Savior was of this mindset on this night. The disciples were about to go through the unthinkable How could Jesus prepare them for that? Well, in this section of his final words, Jesus tells them the importance of having a relationship with the Father and how that relationship interacts with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we'll begin with our scripture reading now, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for this precious gift of your word. Would you now open our eyes to see Christ, open our ears to hear the good news, enable us, Lord, to become more like our Savior because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Love. Love is one of those affections or emotions that's hard to pin down, isn't it? It's not so easy to define. After all, we love pizza and hamburgers. We fall in and out of love. Well, is real love, I mean, surely culture has corrupted the meaning. Is is real love just a feeling? Is that really all it's about? Or is real love a, a voluntary action? something that we choose to do. Biblical love, and for our purposes this morning, is not merely a feeling, but rather an act of the will. We see here in this passage that God chooses to love Jesus. Jesus chooses to love his disciples, us. So you might think that Jesus would next tell his disciples to simply choose to love him back. But instead he tells them to abide in his love. And our pastor talked extensively about abiding last week. To stay or to dwell in his love. And then he tells us how. Obedience. Well, you might say, well, this is beginning to sound like a transactional kind of love. If you obey me, I will love you. No, that's not at all. Jesus chooses to love us. It is an act of his will, and it is not based upon condition. What he said to his disciples was that if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love. Think of it this way. Jesus gave us the story of the man with the two lost sons in Luke 15, also known as the story of the prodigal. In that account, the father loved both of his sons, and that love never wavered. Even when the younger, rebellious son left the family, squandered his life, the father still loved him. However, the son, in his disobedience, was no longer abiding in his father's love. He was not enjoying the benefits of the father's love. His disobedience took him away from that. But it wasn't the father who moved away from the son. We bristle a little at the thought of obedience being related to love, don't we? I mean, modern culture has given us this hyper-romanticized view of love that involves immense emotional feeling, and somehow the idea of the actions of the will being part of that seem to diminish it a little bit, doesn't it? It's like, well, I want you to, it's, it's a will to love me. I, just, I want you to feel it. I want you to love me in that way. If you've been married or in a truly deep friendship with someone for more than 10 years, then you know the fallacy of this, don't you? Real love, whether in marriage or family or friendship, takes a stubborn, relentless act of the will that refuses to go, let go or give up. 
The abundance of broken relationships in our society testify to this. Love relationships cannot and will not survive on emotion. Take that one to the bank. So what about obedience and love? How do those two go together? Well, it's an imperfect example. Any human illustration is imperfect when we comparing that to our relationship with Christ, but it still may prove helpful. So let's look at what we do know. Again, in a marriage, or let's take a close friendship. How does one demonstrate love, or what is a good marker of love for one another? Well, we submit our own will to the desires of the other, right? We do what they want us to do, even if it goes against our own desires, because we love them. We may not call this obedience, but in a sense, it is. We're submitting our will to theirs. The other problem with our understanding of obedience is that our experience with it in human relationships is flawed. We obey our parents, our bosses, our government, our superiors, any superiors, and in the absolute best of circumstances, these authorities in our lives are flawed. They're gonna get it wrong. They often don't deserve or warrant our obedience even though we have to give it to them. But with Jesus, we find one completely worthy of obedience in every way. He's our creator. He wrote the instruction book. He's our redeemer. He is trustworthy. He is our sovereign. And he is God. To obey him is a reasonable and necessary act And in addition, Jesus walked the road of obedience before us, setting the example for his disciples. Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus tells us this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Obedience to Christ is not a difficult chore or punishment. It is not a heavy burden or weight upon our soul. It is the path to rest and joy. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Secondly, a relationship with God is filled with joy. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obedience to Christ is the pathway to joy. Would you describe your life as one that is primarily joy-filled? If you are his child, God desires that the joy that he and his son share be yours. 
and that that joy would fill you up so that you could contain no more of it. Seems to me that Christians often who are very serious about the truth and committed to good expositional preaching are often suspicious of emotions being part of our faith, aren't we? Or part of the expression of our faith in worship. This is really unfortunate in my opinion. Sure, it's true that some Christians are in danger of being all about emotion and letting emotions dictate the practice of their faith to the near exclusion of objective truth. But why should we let fear enter in where God has declared freedom and life? Emotions aren't the enemy. Emotions not grounded in the truth are. In fact, a right understanding of the truth of the gospel who God is and who you are in Christ should have us all over the emotional spectrum. There is a place in our corporate and personal worship for repentance, tears, and conviction of sin. But in Christ, there is a larger place reserved for the posture of expectation, the joy of salvation, and outbursts of happiness. Do you walk around with a frown or a smile on your face? Do you greet people with joy or with pessimism? Is your faith attractive? Is your demeanor contagious? Do people want to be around you? Jesus was always surrounded by people. Do you think it was because of his serious and unhappy personality? No. It was because of the love and joy that exuded from him. Let's follow the Lord in this by our obedience to him and ask him to fill us with his joy. In speaking about the need for both head and heart within the church, Ray Ortland at this year's Gospel Coalition Conference said this, I love Reformed theology, but sometimes I have to admit I've got reservations about Reformed culture. That is, the patterns and habits and relationships and tone and feel and vibe among some Reformed Christians. Real Christianity is a total human reality, both head and heart, both doctrine and culture, both accuracy and beauty, and both stand or fall together. Like me, maybe you're tempted to say in your heart, I hear you, but if we have to err on one side or the other, I'm glad we're more concerned with truth than emotion around here. I believe Jesus might say to us, but I made it so you wouldn't have to choose. May the joy of the Lord be our strength, and may our joy here at St. Andrews be full. Thirdly, a relationship with God is an intimate friendship. Continue reading. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Other than a passing reference about 
Lazarus to his disciples, this is the first instance in his gospel that John records Jesus using the word friend. For three years, Jesus and his disciples have enjoyed the relationship of teacher and student, master and servant. But here, at the end of his ministry with them, he's changing that relationship. It's promotion day. Now he calls them and us friend. He also reminds them of the new commandment he gave them earlier in the evening to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus calls his disciples to be his friends and then he calls us to duplicate that friendship with one another. This is an impossible task, humanly speaking, but Jesus provides divine enablement through his spirit as we will see shortly. Friendship, like love, is another concept that the world has and continues to redefine and destroy. What irony today that we have something called social apps. Think about that. Social apps. We have little computers in our hands that facilitate what the world calls friendship. You know, the platform where you have deep and meaningful conversations with one another, <laughs> where everyone is transparent and open and truthful about who they really are and their daily struggles, where we provide mutual encouragement by clicking like. <laughs> Friends, I've got hundreds. It says so right here on my app. Well, we all know the absurdity of that. Take a second, and I want you to do an exercise. Everybody, count up your friends in your head. I don't mean Facebook friends or Twitter friends or whatever all those things are. Make a mental list of the people that you can really talk to, those with whom you can share the things that make you vulnerable those that you can really let in the inside of your heart and mind. Got it? Now let's take a minute and see in this passage how Jesus defines friendship. The next point in your outline is that a relationship with God is transparent and truthful. Did you catch the end of what the scripture that I just read? Jesus tells us there, that all that he has heard from his Father, he has made known to us. Folks, that's astounding. Talk about intimacy. Jesus has brought us into the council of the Trinity, that friendship of divine love that has existed from eternity past, the veil has been torn in two, and through the blood of Christ, God's people whom he has redeemed for himself may enter in. His love letter to us, his word is completed, and his very spirit dwells within us to make sure we understand and comprehend what it says. 
This friendship between God and his people is one of transparency and truth. A relationship with God is also costly. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. From a human standpoint, this is a true and sobering statement. True friends are willing to take a bullet for one another. But Jesus was telling those that he now called friends something additional. Guys, this friendship that we now enjoy comes at an incredibly high cost. A cost that I must pay. In a few short hours, the disciples would see their beloved friend hanging from a criminal's tree, suffering in innocence for their and all future disciples' sin. Never has such love been shown in friendship. The God of heaven and the person of his son spanned the gulf between heaven and earth, suffering the anguish of hell and dying a million deaths upon that cross so that you and I might be his friends. Oh, what love. And not only that, but are you ready? that we might also have that kind of friendship with one another. Now go back to your list you made a minute ago. Reevaluate it based on this friendship criteria. Not perfectly, mind you, but which of these relationships that you have in your mind is transparent and truthful the way Jesus is? Which of these relationships would you give your life for? Which of these friendships is truly intimate? If anyone is left on your list, consider yourself fortunate. For I imagine that most of us are actually very lonely when it comes to true friendship. Our world is more connected through technology than ever before, and yet people by and large live lonely, solitary lives. Rampant depression, addiction, and suicide are just some of the obvious indicators of this. What an amazing opportunity this presents to the church. Around the world, but more specifically, right here, our little slice of the church known as St. Andrew's Presbyterian. Do you imagine that a local group of Christians that relished in and developed their friendship with Christ and in turn had deep abiding friendships with one another would have an impact on our community? Let me help us with the answer to that question, yes. Absolutely, yes. God created humanity for friendship with him and friendship with one another. Remember in Genesis, we recount every day, and at the end of every day, what did God said? It was very good. But when he got to Adam, there was something not good. And the fall hadn't taken place yet. 
It's not good that man be alone. It wasn't strictly about marriage and procreation. It was about relationship. It was about bonding with one another. It wasn't because God made some kind of mistake and all of a sudden he realized, oh, this isn't good, I gotta fix this. No, God created us with that void, with that hole, with the necessity of friendship with one another in addition to relationship with him. It's his design. We can't do this alone. We can't make it through life alone. We see that over and over and over again, how unhealthy that is. We know that instinctively. So you might ask, how do we as a church develop community like that? I'm so glad you asked. There's a retreat coming up. Did you hear about that? We as a church are going on retreat in the North Carolina mountains next April to be together in order to focus on this exact topic. Dr. Ed Welch is going to be teaching us what it means to be in Christian friendship with one another, and we will have some time to be together to that end. So take that little form and sign up. Don't miss it. A relationship with God is also beneficial to success. Continuing to read in the passage, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, why? That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Everyone wants to matter in life, right? To have purpose, to be successful. In these verses, Jesus reminds his disciples that they didn't seek him, but rather he chose them. And in choosing his people, Jesus is not purposeless. It's not a whim. He not only chooses us for salvation, but he appoints us to go and be successful. Does that make us uncomfortable? Jesus wants you to have a successful life, to bear fruit. And not just any fruit, but fruit with staying power, fruit with permanence, fruit that will be here forever. Our problem is that we set our sights too low. The world says the one who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus warns all those toys are gonna burn up and evaporate and you'll be left holding nothing. Not just for a few decades until you die, but for all eternity. But if we want to invest in something of lasting value, something we can take with us, something that will impact us and those we love for all eternity, Jesus gives his people that opportunity. It's a golden opportunity that we need to seize. You know, when we're young, we don't always recognize the value of Jesus' fruit, do we? Oh, if we could do it over again, don't you think that often? I know this is God's will and this is the way it's supposed to be, but oh, so often I wish I could do it again. Because Jesus' fruit doesn't look nearly as pleasing and appealing as the trinkets of dust that the world offers when we're 20 years old. But I suppose the older that we get, the more we face our mortality, 
the more those trinkets lose their shiny attraction and the fruit of Jesus becomes appealing. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Now there's something to attain to. Jesus says, you can be successful in these. <laughs> That's an amazing promise. But remember, Jesus' friendship is an honest and transparent one. He's not just gonna paint a rosy picture to make the sale. It's tempting for us preachers to do that, isn't it? I mean, we wanna fill up our churches and see lots of people saved after all, so we're gonna make it all look slick and wonderful. I mean, who wouldn't want a relationship with God after what's just been described? Well, actually, a lot of people won't. Because in the next section, we find that a relationship with God is at odds with the world. Jesus gets really to the heart of that right here. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. What? The world's gonna hate me? I'm a nice guy. Out of hatred, the world killed the only true and good person that ever lived, Jesus. A friend of God cannot be a friend of the world's system. The two are incompatible. People make this choice every day, don't they? Don't you see it? The truth is before them and they choose to either love the world or by grace they love God. Jesus has presented some amazing, wonderful, and yet daunting things to his disciples. And at this point, he might have looked at them and said, well guys, my time with you is finished. This is the end of the road for us. After I make an atoning sacrifice and crush the head of Satan in three days when I come out of the grave, I'm gonna be heading home to be with my father. So good luck with all of this. I hope you can manage without me. It's true, a change was coming. Their lives were just about to get rocked. It was going to be something different. But you know what, with Jesus, the something different is always better, not worse. For relationship with God is a constant presence for his friends. Back to the scriptures. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness 
about me. It's true enough that Jesus, the incarnate member of the Trinity, the one with a human body, would be physically leaving his friends soon. But he wasn't abandoning them. In fact, once he arrived back in heaven triumphantly positioned at the right hand of his father, he would send his own, his very own spirit to come and dwell with each of his friends. And at that point, they would not only have his presence during their waking hours and when they were with him physically, they would have his presence in their lives 24-7. And not just for a few days, but for all their remaining days and wherever life took them. And not only them, but all future generations of Jesus' friends, of his disciples. Imagine if Jesus had stayed on earth in his incarnate form. We often postulate in our minds things like that, don't we? Like, oh man, I wish I had been alive when the disciples were alive. I wish Jesus was still here physically. If I could only see him, if I could only be with him, life would be so much better. But imagine if that were true. I suppose it would be nice to see him with our human eyes and if you were fortunate enough to get near him, to touch him, maybe even just touch his garment as he passed by. But imagine how impractical it would be. We'd all be lining up to take trips to Israel in hopes of getting a glimpse. We certainly wouldn't all be able to have the quality time with him that would make him our friend. You think it's hard to get to see the Pope or the President? Imagine if Jesus were still here after 2,000 years, how hard it would be to get an audience with him. Would you really want to trade that reality for the abiding presence of Christ in our hearts 24-7? Finally, a relationship with God is contagious. And you, will all, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus gave the responsibility of bearing witness about him to his friends. He knew we were gonna fail at this. He knew we would do a mediocre job at best. But we are his friends now. And he has entrusted this, the deepest and most important treasure he has to offer the world to us his friends. As his friends, we have moved from being servants to being co-workers in God's kingdom. Remember, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. God loved his son. Jesus loves us and makes us friends we love one another. The world sees this and hears the message of hope from our lips. And they become friends of God too. Have you ever thought about that plan? What an amazing plan that God has enacted. The very success of the gospel is dependent upon friendship. God has willed it to be so. Ever since our relationship of friendship was broken in the garden, God has been acting a plan of restoring that friendship and he uses friendship as the means of making that restoration. 
How cool is that? What a beautiful story we're part of. Maybe you're here today and you're doubting your friendship at all with God. You're not alone. We were all enemies of God before he called us to be friends. Is he calling you to be his friend today? Recognize that you've fallen short of obedience to God's holy law. Determine that you need his friendship more than anything and that you want it more than anything. Call out to him to forgive your sins and save you. Get on the road of obedience and become a friend of God. Christian, there's been much already in the way of application. Are you representing your friend and savior well? As a friend of God through Jesus Christ and with the presence of a spirit living inside of you, Think about these things that you can claim and you can say now. I don't have to travel halfway around the world for a glimpse of my Savior. For I see the beautiful Christ exactly as the Father has revealed him in the Gospels. I don't have to write a letter and wait for a correspondence from the wonderful counselor. For he's already composed a love letter to me with everything I need to know, hiding and holding nothing back from me. I don't have to stand in line to ask a favor of my king, for I can utter a request of him and he hears it from his dwelling within my soul before it is even formed on my lips. And I don't need to compete for an audience with my friend to know what it feels like to be in his presence, for he is always with me and will never leave me or forsake me. Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Rest in this. Rehearse it over and over in your mind and know that he cherishes you as much as the Father cherishes him. Let's pray. Father, we're hard-headed. We're stubborn. We know these things. Lord, would you send the power of your spirit to penetrate our cold hearts to remind us that we are, even as Abraham was, a friend of God. And Lord, as we are your friend, may we in turn be friends to one another. And may that friendship, that love, proclaim to the world the good news of Jesus Christ. Hear us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.